welcome to History's Greatest Screw-Ups, a pod about poor decisions, unfortunate mistakes, and bad luck in history. I'm your host, Carrie Clement, and I am coming to you from the homelands of the Crow, Blackfeet, Cheyenne, Lakota, Dakota, Salish Kootenai, and Shoshone Bannock Indigenous Nations. The unlawful removal and continued displacement of these and other nations enables the rest of us to live and work here. Today, we are speaking with Dr. Sheila McManus from University of Lethbridge in Southern Alberta, a historian who specializes in the borderlands of the North American West. Thank you for joining us today. Happy to be here. Today, we're talking about border boo-boos along the Canadian-U.S. border. But first things first, what are we drinking today? So I decided to stick with just tea. And I am also being a teetotaler today in that I'm just drinking in LaCroix. However, if our <laughs> listeners who want a themed drink, I would perhaps suggest whiskey due to its, shall we say, pivotal role in creating border strife and mishaps, particularly along the Montana-Alberta border. Do you want to set the stage for us? What's our geography? What's our time period? What are sort of the major players? So the geography is the North American West. So late 18th, early 19th century, we still have a lot of colonial powers making very big claims about the continent itself, right? So it's not just that we have, we've had France and Britain, and we've had Spain, and then of course, the Russians, and we have the United States, you know, trying to catch up quickly, making claims about this giant continent, and who's going to get to claim what, who's going to get to hold on to claims that they might have made a couple hundred years ago. So they're figuring out as I say, late 18th to early 19th century, they're having to figure out now as they begin to move from sort of like colonial invading power, as they start moving towards nation state formation, what are the edges going to be? What are the political demarcations going to be of these new nation states on the continent? So if you think about the northern half of the continent, um, the Hudson's Bay Company had given itself, (laughs) so generously, Rupert's land. So that was about 3.9 million square miles Uh, 1.5 million, no, other way around, 3.9 million square kilometers, 1.5 million square miles. I have tried to include both measurements all the way through (laughs) for both metric and imperial (laughs) listeners. So they've been holding on to Rupert's land, right? So that is supposed to be, again, vaguely defined, except it's the land around every river that drains into the Hudson's Bay. Um, And they've been hanging on to this for quite some time. In the middle of the continent, still east of the Rockies, of course, in the middle of the continent, we've got the huge Louisiana Territory. So first claimed by France, then they ceded it to Spain, France gets it back, and then of course Pompey turns around and sells it to the United States. And no one's really sure where the northern edge of the Louisiana Territory is either. And I kind of like some of the debate about this, because as we move into the 19th century, like, well, you know, should we follow the watersheds? So should we take the division between the Hudson's Bay drainage and the Gulf of Mexico drainage? And of course, the Hudson's Bay drainage already claimed by the Hudson's Bay Company. What I like about this, there's times where, you know, my love of drainage basins makes me think I should have been a geographer because where I live, so I live kind of a very, very couple minutes drive away from the Old Man River, um, which winds up in Hudson's Bay. And I'm less than an hour's drive away from the Milk River, which winds up, of course, in the Mississippi and the Gulf of Mexico. So I actually live just north of Mm -hmm. where those two great drainage basins kind of divide. Mm -hmm. So this was kind of the unofficial northern edge, you know, of the Louisiana Territory. But then, so we get to the War of 1812, and in the aftermath of that, you know, kind of like worst war ever, nobody really achieves anything, both sides can claim they won, and, you know, to this day, Canadian students like to write essays about why Canada won or something. But they realize now they have to kind of figure things out. So in 1818, the diplomats are sitting down, and they're like, okay, we have to make final decisions about who gets to keep what. 
now, right? Spain's gone and France is gone. We get to decide who gets to keep what in the continent. So they think 49th parallel, that sounds good. It's kind of roughly around where those two watersheds split anyway. The Americans weren't super keen to try claiming more than that because, you know, it's cold and snowy and probably barren wasteland and there's nothing up here anyway. Um, never mind the fact that Britain was fairly determined to hang <laughs> on to it. So they think, okay, 49th parallel, we're good. From the Lake of the Woods to the Rocky Mountains. The, fo- the Lake of the Woods, you know, kind of west of the Great Lakes, obviously. And then at the same time, they generously give themselves that cushy joint occupancy deal in the Pacific Northwest. There's been a range of different competing claims in the Pacific Northwest. Um, but of course, by this point in time, Spain and Russia are both gone. It's really just Britain and the United States um, still eager to claim that area west of the Rockies. Britain's claims to the area stem from about the 1770s and mm-hmm. the first British navigators to show up and start trying to map the area. The Lewis and Clark expedition is meant to shore up the Americans' claim to that region. So in 1818, each of them is still trying to expand their influence, and they're each quite optimistic that they're going to be able to do that. So they're like, right, joint occupancy. We're all gentlemen here. We'll share. We're just going to share for a while. And then, you know, we'll, we'll renegotiate in a couple of decades. We'll see how that goes. Ooh. So the 49th parallel, in effect, what they give themselves over the next few decades, they're going to have three problems to solve. Mm-hmm. They're going to have one problem at the eastern end, and that's the Lake of the Woods situation. And then they're going to wind up with two problems at the western end, which is San Juan Island and Point Roberts. So I'm going to stick with the uh, eastern end first. So they're pretty sure that the headwaters of the Mississippi River kind of start somewhere around the Lake of the Woods. They think the 49th parallel intersects the Lake of the Woods somewhere. And on older maps, the Lake of the Woods tends to be drawn as this nice oval shape. So they think this is good. This is all perfectly logical and reasonable. Let's do that. So in 1818, they say, okay, fine. We're going to take the northwesternmost corner of the Lake of the Woods, which they think is this lovely oval. And we'll just draw a line. Should be a short one. From that point, either up or down to the 49th parallel, kind of wherever that is, and that's all going to nicely intersect, like 49th parallel, headwaters of the Mississippi, like, you know, it's all going to be good. Oh. The problem is kind of in, you know, classic fashion. This is a bunch of white people who've basically never been there. Right. They have no idea what they're talking about. They have no idea what the lake looks like, where the headwaters of the Mississippi is, right? They know none of these things, but they've agreed to this. So a few years later, the Americans send out Captain Major Stephen Long. So he is supposed to determine the actual location of the 49th parallel. Uh, this is the point where they start to realize that, you know, their calculations may have been a little bit off. <laughs> His surveyors do the work, and I, I love this bit. So when they're done, they have a nice little ceremony, right? Like they raise the flag and they plant, you know, like a wooden pillar with GB carved on one side and US carved on the other side, and they have little ceremony announcing everything south of this you know belongs to the americans oh and of course there's there's many you know stories about you know you can't just go tempt borderlanders like that because you can just rotate that post so <laughs> apparently that happens a few times over the next few years that people just rotate it so our gb is facing south and u.s is facing north but they've done it right they've done it they've surveyed it properly this is fantastic a couple other survey parties are also sent out in the 1820s to try to get a better sense of the shape of the Lake of the Woods. And this is really starting to look ugly because the Lake of the Woods is not a nice oval. It's it's like some kind of Rorschach text. It's a very irregularly shaped lake. So there's actually a couple different points that could arguably be the northwesternmost corner of it. So the 1820s guys kind of like sketch out the lake, decide they don't really want to have to be the one to pick the corner, and they leave. Some other folks get sat onto the 1840s. They commit 
what is now the current northwest angle. They say that, that is the northwesternmost point. The problem is there's points that are further north but not as far west, and there's bits that are farther west but not as far north. So they compromised on the northwest angle. The 1840s guys apparently did leave another kind of one of these wooden posts there. And then Britain and the U.S. just kind of ignore that part of the border for the next few decades. Late 1860s rolls around. Now the border is starting to get a bit twitchy in the area. <laughs> the Americans are a little bit concerned about a British fur trading post that's clearly south of the 49th. You know, Canadian officials now were post-1867. Canadian officials are a bit worried about a fairly aggressive expansionist manifest destiny mm. U.S., so they think, okay, maybe it's time to get a better survey of the 49th parallel. They've been kind of ignoring that stretch for a very long time. It just wasn't a high priority compared to the U.S.-Mexico border mm-hmm. or even the Pacific Northwest. 1872, finally, the border survey teams go out. And what I love about this is they couldn't agree on a name. So everyone's got a different name because the British and the Canadians and the Americans all want to make it sound like it's their survey party. So they kind of put their name first. Uh. So there's two teams in the field, but three different names. Oh, my gosh. And the head of the British-Canadian party, um, so this is Captain Cameron, he annoys the Americans for two years, so the full time, 1872 to 1874, while they're busily working their way west. He refuses to accept the location of the northwesternmost point. His own um, surveyors are telling him, no, no, it's right over there. The Americans are telling him, it's right over there. And the local Ojibwe people are saying, no, really, there's a post right there. A bunch of you guys left it here like 20 odd years ago. Like it's here. It's right there. And he's like, nope, la, 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 oh my not God. looking. Because he has, and you can see this in his papers, he's got these kind of nationalist fantasies, right? Oh. That, no, no. He wants to grab that kind of bottom corner for better water access or possible you know, train access or whatever in the future. So finally, the British government has to tell him, like, give it a rest, dude. We all agree that's the that's the point you're going to use. So just stop. So they draw the line south and head over. And this is where the northwest angle comes from. So when you look closely, right at that part of the map, the 49th parallel goes along and it takes a fairly significant jump north, leaving what's now known as the northwest angle, which is mostly water. So the American territory here is mostly water. The land part it's only about 120 square miles. 315 square kilometers of land. So that's one of the boo-boos. That's one on the eastern end of things. Now look at the Pacific Northwest. So remember I had said they conveniently give themselves a joint occupancy deal in 1818, each of them thinking this is great. I've now got time to strengthen my claims so that I can get the border I want. So they've each made kind of really extravagant claims in the meantime. Britain, you know, sort of in its more, in its calmer moods, is willing to accept a border down to the Columbia the mouth of the Columbia, so have the 49th parallel run until it hits the Columbia, and then where it dips south, they want all of that. It's a river. We like rivers as borders. Yeah. Let us have this bit in their more kind of earlier cheeky moods. At one point, <laughs> they try claiming everything down to the 42nd parallel, which of course at that point is wow. the, the very northern reaches of what is still Spanish-Mexican claims. So they're making a couple different ones. Um, the U.S. also has a couple different positions from they're certainly not about to let, let the border come all the way down to the Columbia. At one point, um, they more famously claim they want to go all the way up to the 5440 point, which is at that point the southern end of Russian claims, leading, of course, to Pope's campaign slogan, 5440 or flight, and perhaps lesser known to American audiences, also the name of a Canadian band. <laughs> Not the old fight. 5440 is a Canadian rock band out of Vancouver. Uh, They've been going strong for 20 years. So, you know, but so none of this is getting settled. Then we get to 1846. 
Polk's been elected, and he realizes, and you know, and he's fairly aggressive about both mm-hmm. borders, the northwestern corner and the southern one, and he realizes that he'd really much rather pick a fight with Mexico over the southern border, because he's way more likely to win that war, than pick a simultaneous war with Britain over the northwest border, he's very unlikely to win against the British Navy. Uh, so he abruptly says, the Americans abruptly get back to Britain and say, yeah, okay, if we're going to have parallel, we're good, we're done. So Britain's like, okay, fine, we'll take that deal. Britain doesn't get the Columbia River border that they want, but they don't need to deal with sort of an aggressive you know, annoying set of American diplomats anymore. So putting on parallel, fine, we're good. The problem here is the language that they agree to, the so 49th parallel from the Rocky Mountains to the middle of the channel, which separates the continent from Vancouver's Island and thence southerly through the middle of the said channel and a Fuca's Straits to the Pacific Ocean. Middle of the channel. Clearly language invented by a bunch of dudes who don't realize yeah. there's a lot of islands in that, so what we now call, you know, the Georgia Strait, there's a lot of islands in the way. And in 1846, nobody bothers to attach a map indicating what they think the middle channel might be. Each side has some older maps. Britain is very fond of a 1790s map from Captain Vancouver. The Americans are very fond of some slightly more recent maps themselves, each showing the border that they want. Is this the equivalent of, like, forgetting to attach a PDF to an email? Yeah, kind of is. Yeah, yeah. I literally think it is, right? They're just like, oh yeah, middle channel, we agreed on that. But there's no map actually attached. There's no 1846 map actually attached to the 1846 treaty. They've just signed off on middle channel, we're good, we're fine, um, with no PDF attached, showing what the negotiators thought that meant at the time, because there's already competing maps, Mm -hmm. right? Like I said, there's already older maps showing some differences of opinion. So the Brits are thinking like a naval power. So for them, a channel is only a channel if you can like sail a boat through it. The Americans are like a channel. It's any body of water separating two islands, even if you can't sail a boat through it. (laughs) And of course, the high number of islands, you know, in the Georgia Strait today, um, some of them, there's a very shallow depth separating them and some you can sail through. So they've caused this problem. Neither side really wants to blink. In the 1850s, the island of contention is the San Juan Island. Out of all the islands, why this one? It's one of the bigger ones, but it's also one of the few in the area that has kind of good open grassland, right? Most of those islands, they're beautiful little islands, but there are a whole lot of rocks and trees. You can't really farm on most of the islands in that whole area. San Juan Island is big enough, but it's got some open grassland. So that's kind of the main reason why they both want that one. Huh. In the 1850s, both sides just act like it's theirs all. <laughs> so we get James Douglas. So he's currently in 1850s. He's governor of the colony of Vancouver Island. He is determined to assert British sovereignty in the region. So in 1853, he um, sort of commissions a local, you know, uh, founds a local agricultural company and sends 1,300 sheep over to San Juan Island with, like, you know, the one white guy as overseer <laughs> and quite interestingly, 15 Hawaiians as shepherds. So this is his, he's making his stance for Britain. This is our island and these are our sheep. Okay. So that's late 1853, 1,300 sheep. I mean, that's a fair number of sheep. It's a lot of sheep. (laughs) It's a lot of sheep. It gives you some sense of the resources of this island and why they all cared. Because boy, an island big enough to put 1,300 sheep on, that's valuable real estate. Yeah. So a few months later, an American official comes by and tries to collect taxes on the sheep. (laughs) 
because the sheep were on an American okay. island. And therefore, the Hudson's Bay Company's farm clearly owes the American government some taxes for these sheep. Hudson's Bay Company dude refuses to pay. A few months after that, an American sheriff comes and he seizes some very valuable rams as payment, right? Hudson's Bay Company hasn't paid taxes to the Americans for these sheep. He's going to come steal some rams. The number varies. Some say 34 rams, some say 49 rams. There's a whole kind of epic tale about he tries to then have like, you know, the fire sale on the island, but no one's really keeping a super close eye on the sheep. And then they're trying to get the sheep onto the <laughs> boats to then leave with them. And of course, that's not going well, which gives the Hawaiian shepherds and their boss enough time to come kind of get the sheep back. Um, so this, we now have farce <laughs> On San Juan Island. In 1857, they finally begin the actual border survey. So they've agreed in 1846. 1857, the actual survey team shows up um, and realizes that they have a problem. The head of the British survey team kind of politely suggests at one point that maybe they should just swap San Juan Island for Point Roberts. This is going to be the other point of contention in the area. Um, So he says, look, let's just trade, okay? Like, you let us have Point Roberts, you guys can have Salmon Island, and the mm. Americans refuse. This takes us to the episode known as the Pig War. <laughs> so now we have, so we still have, right? We have the Hudson's Bay Company farm with their sheep on one end of the island. But we've had these American squatters showing up um, over the course of the 1850s, because it's also an American. 1859, one of those American squatters shoots a pig belonging to the Hudson's Bay Company farm. Again, there's kind of a, you know, apocryphal tale that, you know, keep your pig out of my potatoes. And somebody else shouts, keep your potatoes out of my pig. (laughs) So he has shot and killed this, this troublesome pig. He goes to the Brits. He says, you know, he'll pay a reasonable amount of compensation. It's just, it's just an annoying pig. The British boss is so angry. He demands some exorbitant sum. Which, of course, Mr. Lyman Cutler, the American, refuses to pay. So he storms off. So now, <laughs> both sides rush troops to the island. At one point, uh, within the first few months, the British have five warships and about 1,900 Marines facing off against about 450 U.S. troops. We have the most heavily militarized little island off the coast. Of the Pacific Northwest. And this is just, this is flabbergasting to me that we, America was at almost at war with Britain. Yeah. They just shortly before we're at war with ourselves. Yeah. All because somebody shot a pit. Well, I mean, there's multiple factors that yeah. out that play here, but the catalyst here, excuse me, was a pig. It was a pig. <laughs> yeah. Hence the pig war. Like you can't even come up with a more dignified name for this war. Like there's nothing. You've got nothing here. So these troops, and again, funny you should mention. So the 1860s, it's kind of a busy decade for people. There's other things going on in other parts of the country, Britain, Canada moves towards Confederation. The U.S. has a civil war. The U.S. is buying, you know, um, Alaska from the rest. So, and yet both sides keep troops stationed. Apparently they're very amicable. Both sides get along. <laughs> But their job is to be there representing their sovereign nations, keeping the little toehold on San Juan through the 1860s. And that's, I want a PhD student to write that dissertation, San Juan Island in the 1860s, with all of these other things going on in the world around you. What's life like for the troops on that island? Hanging out, right? You're an American soldier. You could be getting shot at in the Civil War. San Juan Island must have seemed like kind of a cushy posting. For the Brits, it might have felt a bit more demeaning. So again, at this point, we now have someone on the other side. So now we have 
Another suggestion, could we just swap? Could we just swap San Juan Island for Point mm-hmm. Roberts? Once again, remember, we had a previous offer about this. No, both sides, no, they're not going to accept that. The whole thing finally goes to arbitration. In 1872, an international tribunal headed by the Germans finally gives San Juan Island to the Americans. So that's it. Okay. Done. San Juan Island belongs to the Americans. Weirdly enough, they never decided that what they had to figure out was poor little Point Roberts. So Point Roberts, because of that strict adherence to the 49th parallel, the very southern tip of the Tuasin Peninsula is chopped off. It's below the 49th parallel, for it is American territory. It's about four square miles. As I said, there's been a couple of offers to kind of trade. Why don't we just trade? Like, this is ridiculous. You've got this tiny little tip of a peninsula Mm -hmm. dipping south of the 49th. They're both literally in the same kind of neighborhood. Can't we just swap? But no. So they go through all this fuss to settle San Juan, and they just kind of leave Point Roberts the way it is. You know, they get a few squatters on there, become the jumping off point for the gold rush in 1858. Mm -hmm. By the 1870s, 1880s, you've got some canneries, American owned canneries set up on the peninsula. You get a few white homesteaders kind of trickling in. For most of the next few decades, it mostly is just kind of a little vacation getaway for kind of rich white people from Vancouver. It's got great beaches on Point Roberts. So you have a lot of holiday homes. So Point Roberts still today is what they call an exclave. It's this tiny little piece of Hmm. American territory that you cannot access by land. You can drive there from downtown Vancouver in about half an hour. Going to take it on, and this is not counting border crossing time. Of course, life has gotten much more complicated for the Point Roberts year-round community, whether it was after 9/11, of course now um, with the COVID border restrictions. Not counting border time, it's going to take you an hour to drive from Point Roberts to the next nearest kind of land crossing to get back into the United States. Think Blaine, Washington, right? It's going to be kind of your next big American land destination. So those are my three favorite boo-boos about the 49th <laughs> parallel. One in the east. These two in the West, the 49th parallel looks like it is. It's the longest, straightest land border in the world. But it's got these mistakes. It's got these errors on either end. And I just get the biggest kick out. Those are great examples of how border formation was not as orderly as one would think they are, especially just even looking at the map, which I think it's so interesting to have these two nations on not not tender hooks, although San Juan is an interesting sort of example in my mind of um, thwarted, perhaps, uh-huh. violence. Yep. The only casualty is the pig, right? The pig is the only guest. <laughs> In the pig war, for a decade, you have hundreds of troops stationed opposite each other. They never shoot at each other. They don't really get into any fights or anything else. There are no casualties in the pig war. One question I have is how does Seward's Folly fit in with this story at all? uh, Or the purchase of Alaska fit in? Does it sort of essentially remove Russia as a threat? Yeah, yeah. I mean, because the U.S. has never given up on the hope of having the entire Pacific Northwest. What that purchase does is kind of really scare the new Canadian government, right? 1867, the first few little Canadian provinces begin moving towards confederation. And we have these independent, we have these British colonies on the West Coast. And it makes them very, very nervous. And this is partly why everyone's, I think, feeling a bit bombastic about it. The Americans just think, come on, we've got everything south of you. We now own Alaska north of you. Just let us have the bit in the middle. Come on. (laughs) <laughs> and the British slash Canadians are like, no way, no, because if we let you have it, we don't have a Pacific coast, right? We have no access to the Pacific if we just let you take this. And, you know, the Hudson's Bay Company has had 
you know, fur trading posts, you know, in the region, obviously. For ages, they've got these these colonies, the one on Vancouver Island and then the mainland mm-hmm. colony, and they eventually, you know, come together. But yeah, there's some really interesting political backdrop. It's another one of those tensions in the 1860s, right? Because the U.S. is moving towards that purchase with Russia. Russia's not deeply invested in the lower panhandle area anymore. They've really, you know, they've, they've really abandoned their kind of North American claims. The U.S. is very, very interested. It would have loved to have gotten the entire West Coast, right? Like Alaska's all cut off now. Yeah. If they'd had their way, they would have gotten a bit in between as well. And that was one of the reasons why Britain and slash Canada are so determined to not let them have it, to not, you know, kind of concede anything in the area. That's really interesting. What degree did Canadian Confederation or moves towards sort of more independence away from Britain, how much did that sort of make Britain? I'm wondering if it made Britain like dig its dig its heels in a bit more, especially as they're facing, you know, uprest in the other colonies and Yeah. <laughs> Britain Britain's, you know, kind of a bit torn at this point in time. On the one hand, they're trying to get rid of the last of their North American Canadian colonies, mm-hmm. right? They're expensive there, of course, there's been protests at home. So Britain, on the one hand, is trying to nudge the future Canadian provinces towards more independence, right? They are trying to, they are leaning on the colonies in British Columbia, for example, to let's consider a friendly slash shotgun marriage with the Canadians out east. Please go join them because then we're not responsible for you anymore. But they're not willing to let the whole thing go. They maintain a naval base at Esquimalt on the west coast. So Britain, on the one hand, politically wants the colonies to be, you know, kind of moving towards some degree mm-hmm. of independence. They're not fully independent. They become a dominion. They become, you know, the still part of the Commonwealth, etc. But Britain wants to make sure that it still has naval access. Because, of course, if the Americans had seized all of it, Britain would not have that lovely naval base. And they hang on to that naval base at Esquimalt for years so there's kind of two things going on for Britain at the time. They're not interested in hanging on to the colonies in like a political sense. They want them to become more independent. They are very interested in making sure that they still get naval access to the West Coast. Okay, so I guess the last question I have is, what do we know about the Hawaiian sheep herders? On the, do we know much about There's them? There's been a book was written, a couple, um, it's called Leaving Paradise, Indigenous Hawaiians in the Pacific Northwest by Jean Barman. She's a very well-known uh, BC historian. And I think for me, this was one of the first, I shouldn't say recent, it's gosh, 10 or 15 years old now. I think I just ran across it relatively recently. And for me, that was the first kind of big book to first look at the Hawaiians coming um, and their role in the labor force. There's been more recent work um, but I think that one's a great starting point for understanding just how important, you know, I mean, of course, there's been lots of great scholarship about Indigenous peoples in the Pacific Northwest economies. But I feel like until I saw this book, people hadn't really been talking about the Hawaiians. And I remember how struck I was the first time I ran across that kind of little mention, right? Yeah. That when the Hudson's Bay Company goes and, you know, moves all these sheep over to the island, it's... The, the number is always very specific. 15, 15 Hawaiians, huh. um, I believe it's all men, go to work as, you know, shepherds. And I, yes, I, I would love to know more about that. I think it's mentioned a little bit um, in Barman's book. And as I say, I think there's been more recent scholarship about the Hawaiians since. And I think just that's just such a fascinating and kind of underappreciated piece of the story. Yeah, to me, it's sort of like 
if I were in their shoes and just watching all of this play out and the sort of ridiculousness of all of these folks fighting over a hog that had gotten shot over some potatoes and then to place it in, in the same story with the Ojibwa folks back east who were like, no, the, the marker's here. Well, I'm not listening to you. Well, the, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> to have that sort of perspective, I think, is really interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's something that I, you know, someday when I have some time, I want to read a bit more about that because I just think that that, that piece of the story is so interesting. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so what are the important takeaways with the story of these three border boo-boos? It's funny, you know, I think on the one hand, there's something weird about talking about border boo-boos because it implies as if there's a right and correct way to draw a line on a map. I'm a borderlands historian, so not only do I normally tell people that I'm obsessed with invisible lines, but I usually follow that up with, I think a big takeaway for me is borders are stupid. <laughs> and these was like, these are settler colonial violence upon the land. Border boo-boos, I'm, I'm trying to make fun of these mistakes, not to suggest that there is some legitimate, uh, reasonable way to, you know, set up a borderline in a territory that is not yours, um, that you have taken away from or trying to take away from the people. But it's that ridiculousness of it that is so, I think, undermines that seriousness, right? We take borders very seriously. The modern world cares deeply about borders. You know, I think most modern people kind of believe that that line separates me from you, that I'm on one side of this line and you're on the other side of that line, and that therefore there's something different. I think by paying attention to the sheer number of border boo-boos in the world, it undermines that legitimacy. Right? Borders are not natural or right or legitimate. They are fictions. They are imaginary. And the 49th parallel in particular is an imaginary line. You can't see it, right? On the west side of the Rockies, they cut a line through the trees to mark it. And I love that because you created absence to mark the line. Between the Rockies and the Lake of the Woods, there are really no trees. So they did so they they piled they created piles of rocks or they you know, planted little wooden posts, which, you know, local people would come along and think, thank you for the firewood. Off we go. There's plenty of reports um, from the 1880s about government officials being so mad at people taking these handy little wooden posts that they've left behind. So they go back and build, you know, bigger stone monuments to really give some seriousness to this line. And that's just it. They are imaginary. You have to work very, very hard to create them, to survey them, to mark them, to get people to believe in them. And for me, the 49th parallel is just one of the better examples of that. Like they're not even claiming a river um, or some natural demarcation. It's an imaginary, invisible, I shouldn't say imaginary, it's supposed to be geographers that get mad at me. It's an invisible line. It's an invisible. Yeah. And as I mentioned earlier, it's the longest, straightest kind of you know border in the world. And yet at each end, there's these little bits. There's these little mistakes, these tiny, tiny pieces of territory that for some reason, these grand nation states dug in their heels about, you know, no, no, I'm not. These few square miles are mine. That island is not yours. Um, and I, I think that learning about those undermines that project of border making, right? In this day and age, in our present moment, Borders are something that most people take very seriously, right? Whether it's right now travel restrictions, whether it's governments thinking they can put children in cages at a border. And I love, because I'm a Borderlands historian, I'm just so interested in 
the process by which those invisible lines were chosen, were honestly invented, marked, and then imbued with meaning. I suppose I'd like to think that we perhaps we should definitely all take borders a little less seriously. And maybe this, like I say, just kind of helps undermine their legitimacy by looking at, on the one hand, how utterly ridiculous the border making process can be. Um, It's not some grand, serious narrative of, you know, national assertion. Right. I mean, the governments are all very proud of themselves. They write lots of congratulatory reports in the 19th century about how obvious and wonderful you know, their borders are, how perfect their borders are. But you look at these little boo-boos on either end of the 49th and think, eh, you know, really? You're going to take yourself all that seriously? <laughs> well, and just the fact that these borders hinge on so much contingency <laughs> and, and ridiculous contingency, a hog, or, yeah. you know, perhaps the, the, the wooden marker in the east fell over and you couldn't find it. You're right. It's not this grand scheme of these yeah. great men and, and great history. It's Oh, it's a it's a pig rooting around in somebody's potatoes. <laughs> like, yeah, or it's four kilometers, right? It's four kilometers yeah. on the southern tip of the Tawasan Peninsula. You know, for anyone listening, if you've ever taken the ferries out of Tawasan Harbor, I mean, you were there. Like, look to your left, right? Look southeast. That's Point Roberts. That's the itty bitty tiny piece that, for for no particular reason, you know, the the American government desperately wanted to hold on to that island, which with its potential for sheep was a piece that they had to hold on to. The Northwest Angle, I mean, it's a beautiful part of the country, but it's not exactly serving any kind of major military or economic value, even in the middle of the 19th century. And yet that had to be held on to. So there's just, it's national ego. Um, It's just so ridiculous. (laughs) (laughs) But I think that's what makes telling these stories fun and important. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I think we have to laugh at borders I mean, because of the extraordinary pain they have caused, the extraordinary damage that they have done, right, to the indigenous peoples. Um, this is their territory. It is, it, um, I'm here in Blackfoot territory, and they were, you know, cut in half by the 49th parallel. Blackfoot and Blackfeet. You know, the 49th parallel just ran through, you know, their territory. So, you know, it's, it's not meant to downplay the seriousness of the violence yeah. that borders do have done in the past and continue to do today. Um, but I think if we can just undermine them, if we can point out, it's a little bit, you know, emperor has no clothes, right, to, to overuse yeah. that image of these are slightly ridiculous creations. And of course, as a Bordeaux historian, I always wish that if more people understood how ridiculous and arbitrary, and your word was great, contingent, this yeah. whole border creation process is, Maybe we could then think differently about how we allow borders to function in our world today. Yeah, exactly. Thanks for saying that. That's really it. Ha- really highlights the the power that applying history can bring, and yeah. really the the role historians can play in rethinking some of the what we think of as set in stone or exactly. set in wood, <laughs> yeah. uh-huh. set in wood pillars in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, yeah. They don't have to function the way they do. Choices have been made. We allow borders to function the way they do. Nation states want borders to function a certain way. They are a lever of power, but they don't have to. And I can show you how that process started, how that belief was conjured up in the first place. They are not set in stone. Mm -hmm. And I want to believe that we can then make them act differently. Yeah. Shall we talk sources? Oh, sure. Yeah. You know, because
because we are historians. So let me. (laughs) So, I mean, so the material on the Northwest Angle, my my first book, um, The Line Which Separates, although I focus primarily on the Montana, Alberta borderlands um, and kind of this colonial imposition of the bordering Blackfoot territory. um, I had actually dug through a lot of the primary sources about the Northwest Angle bit. So I had all those government documents. So the Northwest Angle stuff really comes, you know, kind of entirely from that first book of mine, the the research I did for my PhD. The Pacific Northwest stuff. So there's been a fantastic book by E.C. Coleman called The Pig War. And it's, you know, they they got a whole book out of that because there is a lot of context. And it's a a great book. It's a very fun book. Um, They move back and forth from sort of narrow focus on the island to Mm -hmm. kind of big picture what else is going on geopolitically and stuff. So it's a great starting point. Um, for the pig war. And then I relied heavily on a couple of others. So the work of um, John Dunbaven, Gordon Lyle, uh, Mark Bieland, and Julian Mingi. I relied heavily on those four authors for more about kind of the surveying questions. Point Roberts, um, Mingi has written the most about Point Roberts. And the other three, I was trying to get a better sense of the, the, the San Juan Island dispute. Um, you know, it was very helpful because the research for this I now know why. I don't think I ever fully understood before why San Juan Island um, or kind of just all of the details going back and forth. So that's that's primarily the sources I used for all of this today. Well, thank you. Thank you for sharing. I feel like I, want to need, um, I should show you my footnotes now. <laughs> Here's all the archives I went that's to. Right. Here's all the letters I didn't get to. <laughs> No one else ever finds them quite as fascinating as historians do. But it's like, but look, they're here. I have them. Uh, yeah, exactly. I'm showing my work. <laughs> <laughs> Even in the podcast genre, it's like, I want you to look at a piece of paper where you can see my beautiful footnotes. Exactly. You, know, and you can't convey that orally. <laughs> not, not very effectively, no. <laughs> Any last thoughts? No, thank you very much for um, inviting me to have this conversation. Um, I never get tired of uh, ranting about, you know, borders are stupid. Borders are stupid, people. <laughs> borders are stupid. Don't don't believe them because they're lying to you. <laughs> oh, many, yes. <laughs> well, uh, thank you for joining us today. Um, you can find more of Dr. McManus's work at SheilaMcManus.com. Um, for more information on the pod, you can go to History'sGreatestScrewups.com or follow us on Twitter at HScrewups. Uh, History's Greatest Screw-Ups is hosted, produced, and edited by myself, Carrie Clement. Music is by Scott Holmes. Please remember to rate and review the pod and share with your friends. Join us next time for tales about poor decisions, unfortunate mistakes, and bad luck in history. Until then, be good people and make good choices so you don't end up on this pod. I love that. <laughs>